Thank you very much. It is my great honor and pleasure to be with all of you this evening. It is especially a historical, timeless tradition for people who are seeking true spiritual enlightenment to gather together on the banks of the sacred river Ganga. The great sage Vidura, just close by in Haridwar, sat on the bank of the Ganga and inquired from the Mahatma Maitreya Rishi. And from that discussion within our Puranas are many, many chapters with philosophy and stories that have inspired people's hearts for thousands and thousands of years. There's a beautiful story of a king. His name was Parikshit. He was very pious in every way. He was the type of king that everyone loved. And in those days, kings didn't have to run for elections every few years. It was something for life. Because he did not see anything as his own. He considered his body, his family, all of his citizens, all of his property, everything in creation to be the property of Bhagavan or God. And he considered himself a humble caretaker, a servant of all. The power and the wealth of being a king did not make him arrogant. Rather, it only increased his humility because he understood that every living being is a child of God. In the Bhagavad Gita, Lord Krishna tells, I am the father and mother of all living beings. Therefore, Parikshit Maharaj considered everyone his praja. That means he treated every citizen, whatever social or spiritual status in society they may have been, whatever their race, their color, even whatever their species, wherever there was life, he considered it a sacred part of God. And he treated everyone like a father or a mother would treat a child to protect, to inspire, to educate, to nourish, to forgive. 
But somehow or other, it's a long story, but he made a mistake, a little mistake. Because however great and intelligent and powerful you are in this world, somehow we always make mistakes. And by this mistake, he was cursed to die in seven days. Now, in those days, curses actually worked. Today, if somebody curses you to die, you just say, so what? <laughs> What's next? Curses don't work so good in this. And if they do, they, you can easily get around it. <laughs> it was a child that cursed him because he was very angry. based on miscommunication. Now, King Parikshit, he could have, if he wanted to, he was in charge of all the greatest militaries. He could have counteracted. He was also actually a great yogi. He had tremendous cities and powers. He could have counteracted it if he wanted to. He could have declared war. He could have punished his offender. but he was even a higher yogi than that. He saw it as God's blessing. The purpose of life is self-realization. Atato Brahma Jigyasa. Everything has a beginning and end in this world. Time is so powerful you cannot see time. You cannot feel it, touch it, taste it, hear it, smell it. It's so subtle. Subtler than the senses, subtler than the mind, subtler than the intelligence. It's subtler than the ego. It's the subtlest thing. Yet it's so powerful. It's in the process of burning out the sun drying up every ocean, making every planet into powder. The Himalayan mountains will turn to dust in course of time. What to speak of our little bodies? If we live a hundred years old, if you're from England, the Queen of England will give you a special award. Personally, it's worth living for, for some people. But what is a hundred years? When you consider the span of eternity, which is actually the only reality. So human form of life has a special blessing. Not necessarily that our success is how many years we live, but the quality in which we utilize every moment. One moment of full consciousness of our true nature and our true purpose and our true love is a more valuable life than living thousands of years without that just struggling 
through all the various dualities of pleasure and pain and happiness and unhappiness and honor and dishonor and health and disease and birth and death. So Parikshit Maharaj was such an enlightened yogi, even though he was king, when he was informed that you have been cursed unconditionally to die in seven days by being bit by a serpent. King Parikshit bowed his head. What a blessing. I know I have seven days to live. What will I do with each moment of these seven days? He was happy. It's not that he didn't like his life. He loved his life. <laughs> but he, he understood that his life is more than just what is in this little shell called the human body. Najayate mariyate vakadachit. The Bhagavad Gita tells that the living force within the body of all beings is unborn and undying. It is primeval, eternal. Nahanyate hanyamane sadide. It never dies. Vasamsijanani yadavihaya. The Gita tells for an enlightened person, death is changing clothes. It's not that you don't take care of your clothes while you have it. (laughs) They're precious clothes if they're used for a sacred purpose. But when the time comes, we understand that life is beyond this. It cannot change my identity or my relationship with that which is sacred. And when our relationships in this world are actually for the body, mind, and soul of another, when we know ourselves, we naturally know others too in their spiritual essence. And then our relationships are deep and forever and limitlessly meaningful. So Parikshit understood these things. So what did he do? He left his palace and decided he was going to fast for the next seven days. Because he wanted to give all of his energy, all of his intention, attention toward his enlightenment. Because that's all that really mattered anymore. And he came to the banks of the holy river Ganges, the Ganga. Not too far from here. If you drive from Rishikesh to Delhi, you pass a city called Mirut. And just around there, if you turn the other direction, from here you turn left, just about a half hour drive, one of the most sacred places, Sukatal, where the Ganges flowed. And under a banyan tree, Parikshit Maharaj came there 
and said, I'm going to fast till death on the holy river Ganges. And I want to hear, I want to hear about the real value of life. It was such a dramatic experience. This was about 5,000 years ago. And there was no internet. There was no television. There was no, what do they call it, Twitter or any of that. (laughs) But somehow or other the word spread immediately. Because yogis have a much faster and more efficient way of communicating than all that stuff. So all the great yogis in the world and the universe wanted to be there to help him attain perfection during his seven days because they were so grateful to him. He was a husband. He had children, a wife. (laughs) He was performing so many apparently worldly activities. But the greatest renunciates coming from the caves of Himalayas and the, and the Sayadri Mountains and the Vindhya Mountains and the jungles and the forests, they all came. And because they were great yogis, they could come really fast. And there were people that we read about from thousands and millions of years back. They learned how to preserve their bodies for long times. There was Vishwamitra, Vashishta, Gautam Rishi. Gautam Rishi is the person who brought the Godavari River to this world. Long ago. Bardraj Muni, Vyasdev, Narada. They all assembled to be there, to give support, prayers and blessings to Parikshit. And Parikshit was so humble. He was just wearing very, very simple loincloth. He gave up his royal robes, all of his royal food, his palace, everything, to sit under the tree on the bank of this river. And he honored every person that came and asked them to please instruct him in the goal of life. Now, sometimes in a sitting where you really have what we would call in today's world an all-star cast of sages, rishis, and yogis, Sages that are glorified in Mahabharata, in Ramayana, in the Puranas, in the Itihastas, in the Vedas, they were all there. If anyone had any ego, they would have thought, I'm the one who should speak. Because whoever was going to speak this talk in front of everybody is going to really be famous throughout history. At that moment, a 16-year-old boy whose name was Shukadev. He happened to come from the forest. He was the son of Vyasadev, the literary incarnation of Bhagavan Sri Vishnu. Shukadev was 
in the womb of his mother, he was Brahman realized. He realized I'm not this body. He realized I'm not anything about this world. And he understood how many temptations and, and challenges can entangle you in the network of karma in this world. And he was satisfied. So he decided, I'm just going to stay in the womb of my mother. It's not very comfortable, but there's no distractions. He was in the womb of his mother for 12 years. Until finally Vyasadeva and brought Krishna from Dwarka to ask him to come out. And he came out. It's a long story. But he was walking. And he, he was so oblivious to material existence that he didn't bother putting on clothes. Not as a fashion or because he was a part of some sect. It's just that it was not something he thought about. <laughs> he didn't think about doing it or not doing it. He was just totally immersed in his liberated state. And the common people thought he was crazy. So he was going through a village and people thought, what is this madman? He doesn't even say anything. And they started throwing things at him and spitting on him and, and ridiculing him and harassing him. And he was just smiling and walking. And somehow, just by Ishwara Sarava Bhutanam Hridde the Lord within our heart ultimately directs our wanderings according to our desires and according to our karma. So he was just walking and all these people were chasing him and saying terrible things, making fun, and he came into this wonderful gathering where all the sages and rishis and yogis were sitting with the emperor of the world and everyone stood to receive him. He was just a young boy. Teenager. And when all the village people saw that he's actually a great sage and rishi, they, they got really afraid and went away. Everyone there unanimously accepted there is no one more qualified to speak to the king than Shukadev. Because he has heard so carefully from his guru, Vyasadev. And he, he has understood it, and he lives by it, with his words, with his actions, and with his thoughts. And even his guru was there, Vyastev. Even he didn't say, no, I'm his guru, I should speak. He was thinking, no, he's more qualified than me. This is the way the great yogis were in those days. <laughs> so... They gave Shukadev the raised seat of honor. And all of the rest of them sat on the ground along with the king. Maharaj Parikshit asked three questions. And the answers to those three questions comprise eight. 18,000 verses of the Bhagavad Purana 
or Śrīmad-Bhāgavatam, which is called, which is considered the essence of all Vedic knowledge. Would you like to hear the three questions? He was a king, so he had been around and he knows everything about what's going on in the world. And he could also sense what was going to happen in the future. This was around 5,000 years ago. He asked, of the many religious, spiritual paths, and so many different scriptures and philosophies, I don't have time right now to study all of them. Please tell me what is the very essence that one should understand and live by. He didn't want just some sectarian teaching. He wanted the underlying truth that is the very purpose of all great spiritual traditions. His second question, what is the foremost responsibility for every human being? And his third question is so relevant to each and every one of us. What is the prime duty of a person who is about to die? Padam padam yadvipatam natesham. In this world, whoever we are, whatever we have, whatever we have accomplished, there's danger at every step. We see it, we hear about it. Calamity, death could come to anyone, anytime. The Acharyas, the great yogis have told us that Parikshit Maharaj knew he had seven days to live. But there is no one within this world who knows for sure that they even have seven minutes to live. So to take the precious moments that we have very seriously and invest them in the best possible way is true intelligence, wisdom. When Sukadev Goswami, the 16-year-old boy, heard those questions, he became blissful. He honored the king. He said, you are glorious and your questions are glorious because the answers to these questions are meant for the ultimate benefit for all living beings. It's very interesting that this historical event took place just downstream from where we're sitting now, the Holy River Ganga. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the Yuga Avatar, the Avatar of this age. He lived on the bank of the Ganga in Navadweep. And he spoke the glories of the Ganga in this way. 
said the river Ganges is so sacred. She has descended from God her, himself. She is the, the feminine aspect of the one supreme absolute truth. She's a Shakti, a Ladini Shakti of the Lord. Her liquid is not just water, but is it's permeated with grace, with blessings. There's a beautiful verse. Om apavitra apavitro vasaravavastam gatopiva yasmaret pundarikaksham sabayabhyantarasuchi. When we become purified of our egoistic, selfish attachments, of our misconceptions, then we realize who we really are, our true nature which is Satchitananda, eternal, full of knowledge and full of bliss. And what is that bliss? The essence of bliss is prem or love. Ganga appears to be water, but that water is permeated with prem, with God's love, with God's compassion for all beings. And that is why greatest enlightened sages, rishis, and yogis worship Mother Ganga. They're not just worshiping a river. Just like an example, we have this body. Some of us are women, and some of us are men, and some of us are tall, and some of us are small. But it's the atma, the soul that's seeing through the eyes and hearing through the ears and tasting through the tongue and feeling through the flesh. It's the atma that gives life to the body. The energy, the consciousness of the atma, the soul, is in every cellular atomic particle of the body. That's why if somebody pinches you here, you feel it. How do you feel it? If you pinch a dead body, dead body doesn't feel anything because there's nobody there. The Atma's within our heart, but the energy of the Atma is pervading the entire body. So similarly, Ganga, the river, is like is the body, is the body of the goddess Ganga. And her spirit, her infinite eternal grace is in every drop of that water. It's permeating the whole river. And how does she permeate the river? With her blessings, with her grace. But Krishna tells in Gita, We can recognize it according to our sharanagati, according to our surrender, our sincerity in our faith. That is why satsang is so important. Satsang is where enlightened people, spiritually minded people, who really have a shared divine purpose, come together to perform seva, to serve, 
to speak and to hear and to chant and to pray and to meditate. Satsang is when the energy of many people who are like-minded seeking true spiritual connection increases people's faith. Faith is so important. Otherwise, why would we do anything out of the ordinary? To pray to God, to perform meditation, even to perform asanas. It's required that we have faith that we're going to get something good from this. Otherwise, why bother? We could just watch television. People give up so many things that ordinarily give them so much pleasure because they have faith in something higher. We go to school. We'd rather play, but we have faith that if I go to school, there'll be a better life for me in the future than if I just play all day. So, so many of the things we do in life are based on faith. But faith in that which is beyond the mind and the intellect. Faith in the underlying current of truth. Faith in the divine that can transform our character and transform our lives. That's successful when we hear from people with faith. And all these great yogis and rishis, they have all taught us what we see with the Ganges. We learn to see through our ears. We're just seeing water. <laughs> but when we hear from those who, who have realized, who have experienced, who have understood the infinite grace that's flowing in every wave of Mother Ganga, She's actually our true mother, Mother Earth, Mother Ganga. It's that same female divine energy that's the mother of all living beings. She's flowing. She's giving us water for physical life. She's giving us beautiful song for our emotional happiness. And she's giving us grace to liberate our very souls from all suffering, from birth and death. And ultimately, beyond liberation, the highest platform of liberation, is she's nourishing with the awakening of our love of God and love for all beings. Parikshit Maharaj knew that if he was in the association of saintly people on the bank of Mother Ganga, he would attain the highest perfection in his life. And he did. Not only did he, but he did it in such a way that countless millions and millions and millions of people have attained that same perfection just by hearing about it and reading the Bhagavad Purana. Srimad Bhagavad. So I'm very grateful to be here on the bank of the Ganga with all of you. I was asked to speak about the qualities of a yogi. So now I will begin my talk. <laughs>
I only have a few minutes now. <clears throat> Throughout Bhagavad Gita, it describes the qualities of a yogi. But within this scripture I was talking about, Srimad Bhagavatam, Sukadev Goswami was speaking to Parikshit Maharaj on the bank of the Ganga at Shukatal. And he's telling the story of Vidura asking questions to Maitreya Rishi in Hardwar on the bank of Ganga. And therein there's the beautiful story of the avatar Kapila Dev. His mother Devahuti was a very, very um, illustrious lady. She was in a very difficult predicament in her life. And she approached her son for direction. And Kapila Dev spoke the Sankhya philosophy. Within those texts, Kapila Dev explains the qualities of a true yogi. Tatikshava karunaka suhrita saravadehinam ajata satrava santa sadava sadhu pushanam. That the true qualities of a sadhu, sadhu means a yogi, a realized person. Tolerance, mercifulness and compassion, that that person is friendly toward all living beings. That such a person has no enmity toward anyone. They're always peaceful and they always abide by the Holy Scriptures. These are the ornaments that give beauty to a yogi or a sadhu. I'd like to speak briefly of these characteristics. Titikshaka means tolerance. There are so many different perspectives of this word. My own beloved Guru Maharaj, His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, he wrote in one of his books that the greatness of a person should be estimated by how that person is able to tolerate provoking situations. That's actually the test of our greatness. Not just how nice we are when it's nice, but how we tolerate provoking situations. And what does it mean to tolerate? On one level, it means to tolerate temptations that if I give up my ideals, if I give up my integrity, I could get so much. And to tolerate fear 
that if I do not give up my integrity and my ideals, I could lose so much. To live by sacred ideals is integrity. And to live with integrity takes tolerance because everyone's tested. The Bhagavad Gita explains that the non-permanent appearance and disappearance of happiness and distress and pleasure and pain and honor and dishonor and health and disease, they are always coming and going like the winter and summer seasons. There's one thing that we can be absolutely certain of when the sun shines in the summer, that winter's coming. And there's one thing we can know for sure in the coldest days of the winter, that summer's coming. (laughs) They're always changing. The dualities of this world are like different sides of the same coin. In America, we say heads and tails. Is that what all of you say too? The head side of the tail, tails. If you say, I want the heads, but I do not want the tails. If you take the coin, you get both. They're inseparable. If you want to enjoy pleasure, you have to accept that you're going to suffer pain. To the degree you're enjoying honor, to that degree it's going to really hurt when there's dishonor. If you don't really care about honor, then dishonor doesn't hurt either. Pleasure, pain, happiness, distress. But it's very difficult to tolerate them. We have to tolerate both the good times and the bad times. because our souls are full of bliss, they're always looking for pleasure. But the problem is when we're looking for it in temporary fleeting things that have such minimal value, there's never quality of pleasure because the soul is looking for something that's deep and profound. It's looking for eternal love. Nothing could substitute that. And it's within us. So the Gita says one should learn to tolerate these things without being disturbed. This is a yogi. The Gita goes on to tell that just as a tortoise puts his head and limbs outside the shell when there's something to do, but then if some difficulty comes, it withdraws its limbs within the shell. So similarly, a yogi, according to these teachings of Bhagavad Gita, is fully active for seva. But when it comes to selfish, egoistic um, impulses, draws limbs within the shell. It describes that a true yogi rejoices within, is satisfied within, is illumined and enlightened from within. That is real intelligence.
not just grasping, grasping for things and things and things. There's a saying that in a cultured society, people love people and use things. But in the world we live in, too often, people love things and use people to get them or keep them. That's a very shallow, unsatisfying life. A life where the heart is constantly starving. And to divert our attention from the starvation of the heart, the mind is always looking for so many things to, to, to occupy itself with. The Bhagavad Gita tells that a true yogi sees every living being with equal vision. Vidyavanaya sampane brahmani kavihastini suni chaiva swapakecha pandita samadarshana. This means real wisdom is to see whether one is a very enlightened Brahman or sage, or whether one is just a simple person doing labor work, or whether one is an elephant, or a cow, or a dog, or a cat, wherever there's life, it's sacred. A saintly person. understands how to deal with different types of um, variegatedness within this world, but always in the spirit of respecting the inner life within it. Male, female, black, white, red, yellow, brown, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Jain, Sikh, Parsi, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist. The Atma and the soul is none of these things. <laughs> we could change our religion, but the Atma never changes. We can be rich or poor, or educated or uneducated. And when our compassion expands, beyond the limitation of just our ego of being humans, then it extends to all of the animals and the birds and the fish and the trees. Wherever there's life, there's a sacred peace of God. Can I tell you a little personal story? Just on... January 26th. It's Republic Day in India. So I was just minding my own business, sitting in a little room where the walls are covered with cow dung in Mumbai at our ashram. And I got an invitation from the president of India in Delhi. 
at his um, palace, the most prominent palace in all of India, the presidential palace. He was going to have a reception for Barack and Michelle Obama. And the prime minister and all the leading people of India were going to be there. So there was about 150 guests and there was all the ministers and chief ministers of, of the federal government and president of the United States, prime minister and president of India. They were all sitting there and I was about as far as I was from all of you and it was in the back garden. And I was just watching everyone rose as they, a military band played the national anthem. And then some, the highlight of my experience was this. I mean, I, I was very appreciative of being there and all of that. A bird flew overhead, just like a monkey is jumping to the side. A bird flew overhead, and I was looking up at the bird in the sky, and then I was looking at the prime minister and the president and the cabinet ministers and everyone else, and I was seeing that the bird was looking down at us, and I was looking up at him. And I was thinking, that bird is a living person, is an atma, is a part of God. I call God Krishna, the all-attractive, all-loving one. And I was thinking, this bird is a child of Krishna, and so is the president and the prime minister. They're also children of Krishna. Spiritually, we all have the same kind of souls. I was thinking the bird can't rule over governments, but the rulers of governments can't fly in the sky either. So God has given us all special qualities, special features. And it was just so beautiful to see the simplest feathered being with as much love and appreciation as I'm seeing the most powerful people in the world. Because after all, that bird can become a prime minister in its future life. And the prime ministers could become birds if they live accordingly. <laughs> so the idea that the Gita is teaching us of how a yogi sees every living being with equal vision is in the context of compassion. There's no value of just seeing people with equal vision unless we love them and we feel compassion for them. It is said that a yogi is paradukaduki. A primary feature of a true yogi. That another person's happiness is my happiness. And another person's suffering is my suffering. When we actually understand who I am, then we can understand our true relationship with every living being. That's love. Universal compassion. It describes in Gita also that for a true yogi, 
sees a pebble, a stone, and solid gold with equal vision. How is it possible? There's so many stones here, but we're not picking it up. But if there was gold there, we might be tempted to pick it up. <laughs> it's not that they don't see the differentiation. It's that they understand that real wealth is not about stones or gold. It's about love. It's about peace. It's about the happiness within. It's about tapping into God's grace. Krishna's grace. That's where real wealth is. True wealth is in finding the joy of the love that is within ourselves and sharing it with others. And that wealth has no beginning or end. This is a universal principle. In the Bible, it is said, Lord Jesus told that don't make your treasure in this world. Make your treasure in the kingdom of God. Because in this world, whatever your treasure will be, it's going to be corroded by time. It's going to be subjected to rust and moth and thieves. But if you find your treasure within yourself, the kingdom of God is within. There is no thieves. There is no rust. It's secure. It's forever. And it describes how a true yogi has no envy toward anyone. This is one of the hardest things. <laughs> a true yogi is really well-wisher. It's only because an emptiness and anxiety due to emptiness that we're envious or that we want to see anybody else not succeed. But when we find that happiness within ourselves, our greatest joy is to see other people blessed, other people empowered with grace, other people doing wonderful, wonderful things for the betterment of the world. And then Krishna explains in the Gita how this is possible. Vishayavani vartante niraharasya dehina rasavarajamarasopyasya param dristvani vartate. It's not difficult to give up our materialistic, selfish ego tendencies if we experience something higher. Param dristvani vartate. That higher taste. And the path of bhakti, that higher taste, is prem. It is love. To feel God's love and to be an instrument of God's love in everything we do. Yat karoshi yadasnasi yaj A true yogi 
is not in need. A true yogi is so self-satisfied, simply wants to give. There's a beautiful story that tells about such a yogi's qualities. He was also a king. His name is Ambarish. For the welfare of others, he went into a forest. The name of the place was Maduban. It's on the bank of the river Yamuna, in the area of Brajbhumi. And to purify himself and to invoke divine blessings upon everyone in the world, he fasted for many, many days. And he was in such a secluded place, at the end of his fast, and his whole family was fasting with him. A big plate of sacred food, prasadam, was brought to him. And he was just about to eat. And he and his family were actually on the verge of death from fasting for so long. And just at that moment, Durvasa Muni, one of the greatest historical sages, Rishi Sadhus, came to his house. Durvasa Muni is a yogi who never sleeps indoors. He only sleeps under trees or in caves or on riverbanks. He only wears tree bark as clothes. He has long matted hair and he has tremendous yogic cities or mystical powers. And he's so powerful and so learned that wherever he goes, 60,000 Babaji's and yogis follow behind him who are his disciples. So Dravas Munir arrives and he says to Ambarish, I am your guest and I am hungry. <laughs> so Ambarish, he decided, you know, I have to feed him. <laughs> so he said, please come in and have prasad, have dinner. And Durvas Muni said, first I must go to take my bath in the Yamuna before I can eat anything. So Durvasa went to the Yamuna River and while he was there, he entered into a state of samadhi. While he was in the water. So his bath was taking really a long time. <laughs> and Ambarish, he, he was told by some saintly learned scholars who were with him that according to the tradition, you have to break your fast by a certain time, otherwise the benefits of your fasting are not going to be effective. Ambarish says, well, when do I have to break my fast? They said, in a moment. He said, but it's impolite, because Durvas Muni is, in, is my guest, and if I eat before he eats, that's not good manners. <laughs> so what should I do? 
And they were all confused. It would hurt the whole world if he didn't break his fast on the right time because he was fasting for everyone. And he didn't want to be impolite to a yogi. So Ambarish said, I read in the scriptures that if you drink a drop of water, Charanamrit, sacred water, it's simultaneously breaking your fast and not breaking your fast. And everybody said, yes, yes, that's true. Drink some water. So he drank a single drop of water. Durvasa, because of his powers, he was a celibate monk. <laughs> He's in the Yamuna in Samadhi, and all of a sudden his Samadhi, he saw Ambarish drank water. <laughs> he was furious. You see, renunciation ultimately is renunciation of our ahankar, our false ego. I've seen that sometimes people fast, and as they're fasting, if they see anybody eating, they look at them with disdain. I am fasting and you are eating. But what's happening? That means his belly's fasting, but his ego is feasting. So actual renunciation is humility and respect for others and detachment from all of these egoistic things. So Durvas Muni somehow or other, because he was being, he felt he was being dishonored, he felt he was being disrespected, he got really angry. So angry! He came out of the Yamuna, he came to Ambarish, his eyes were red with rage. He said, people call you a pious person. People call you a, a Rajarishi, a king who is a saint. You cannot control your mind. You cannot control your senses. You couldn't even wait till I came back before you drank water. Because of this, I'm, I am so disgusted with you that today you will die. And Durvas Muni was really a yogi on one level. He took one of, he pulled one of his, do you like this story? Okay. <laughs> he pulled one of his matted hairs from his head and he held it up, just a single hair. He chanted a mantra and with that mantra he dashed the hair to the ground. From that hair was a blazing, enormous fire. And the fire was the body of a person. And that fiery body was screaming in anger and attacked Ambarish to burn him to ashes. And Ambarish was just standing. He had no fear. He was feeling embarrassed that I drank the water. <laughs> I should have waited. <laughs> he was standing with folded palms. 
no fear and no anger. Sharanagati, he just gave his heart to Lord Narayan. And he prayed, my dear Lord, if you want to protect me, nothing can kill me. Nothing can harm me. And if you think it's my time to go, nothing can protect me. I'm yours. And in loving remembrance of the Lord, knowing that he's the eternal soul, he just closed his eyes with gratitude for whatever was happening. Lord Vishnu, to protect his devotee, took his primary astra, the sudarshan, which is like a wheel, and it came and it liberated the fiery demon. And Ravasmuni saw that, like, what is this? And then that Sudarshan chakra came toward Durvasmuni. And Durvasmuni immediately turned his back and ran away as fast as he could. And the weapon of Vishnu was following behind him. And he ran really fast. And when he couldn't run fast enough, he started to fly. He had these powers. And when the, and wherever he went, it was inches behind him and he could feel the heat of it. He went all the way to Indra Loka, the heavens. And he said, Indra, save me. Indra said, Vishnu's weapon, there's nothing I can do. And then he went to Brahma Loka and said, Brahma, save me. Brahma said, there's nothing I can do. And then he went to Shiva Loka, Kailash Dham, said, Lord Shankar, save me. Shankar said, why did you do that stupid thing? <laughs> king, the king's a good person. Why did you do that? There's nothing I can do for you. That's Vishnu's weapons. And then he went to Vaikuntha, the abode of Vishnu. Can you imagine such a yogi? He could fly anywhere. And when he came to Vishnu Loka, he fell at Vishnu, Bhagavan's feet, and said, please, I'm surrendering to you. Save me. Vishnu said, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> he said, but it's your weapon. How can you say that? He said, you hurt my devotee. He said, you offended my devotee. Durvasmuni said, please, have a heart and give me compassion. And Ambarish and Lord Narayan told him, he said, Sadhu nam hridayam vayam. That the true yogi, the true sadhu, is one who has given their heart to me. And when someone gives their heart to me, I give my full heart to that person. Such a yogi knows no one but me, and I know no one but that devotee. Such a devotee sees me in the heart of everyone, and therefore is compassionate toward everyone, and therefore I am the same way. I see my devotee everywhere. 
He said, you're telling me that I should have a heart. But I don't have my heart. I gave my heart to Ambarish. <laughs> my heart is in him. If you want to find my heart, you have to go to him. I manifest through my devotees who love me. And then Durvasamuni understood that I'm considered all over the place to be the greatest of yogis, but this household man who has family and who's doing his work and everything like that and who's so humble and is not showing any cities, he's a greater yogi than me. Because he has complete satisfaction of the mind and he's totally forgiving. Ambarish went, I mean, Dorvasa went all the way back to Ambarish. And do you know something? Ambarish didn't eat anything. It was a year that he was running around all over the place trying to get shelter. And Ambarish just was waiting for him to return because he wouldn't eat until he fed his guests. And when Dorvasa Muni came running, he flying back and he said, <laughs> And Ambarish saw the chakra. Ambarish prayed, please, if I have done, my dear Lord, if ever I have done anything to serve you, to please you, if through my prayers, my meditation, my seva, my charity, anything I've ever done, take the credits of all of that to protect Durvasmuni and forgive him. And the, the chakra went away the wheel of Vishnu. And Durvasmuni, he bowed to Ambarish's feet and Ambarish bowed to Durvasa's feet. And Ambarish apologized. said, just see, because of me you had to go through so much trouble. Durvas understood. This type of forgiveness, this type of being compassionate beyond the faults of others is the true quality of a yogi. And from that time, Durvas Muni, wherever he goes, he glorifies this quality. In so many great texts, we find forgiveness and compassion being the crest jewel of all qualities of a yogi. And that quality is cultivated by actually finding that essence of our true self and tapping, reconnecting to God's love. This chanting of mantras, kirtan, is especially for that purpose, to tune in to the divine grace, the frequency of grace that's everywhere and within ourselves. And when we tune into that grace, it takes us to an inner happiness that cannot be disturbed by any situation in this world. 
because it's beyond. And when we tune into that grace, it empowers us to be an instrument of that grace, an instrument of that love. When we value that grace, as the, the most precious of all attainments. And actually it cannot be attained. It can only be given to us, revealed to us when we open our hearts completely through our spiritual practice, through the, this association of people we keep, and through our, the character in which we live. So I'd like to end by having a little kirtan wherein we meditate on tuning in to that spiritual grace, that essence within all of us. And I'm going to teach you a special asana. It's called Sharanagati Asana. Sharanagati means sh to, to find shelter. Ishwaras, samadhi siddhir Ishwara pranidhanat. That surrender to Ishwara. As I'm chanting with folded hands like this, please namaskar, welcome the divine presence of, of God into your hearts. And as you're chanting, raise your arms like this, kind of like antennas to receive the grace and transmit the grace. <laughs> and raising the arms is also a gesture of complete humility, that my Lord, I'm yours. Like Ambarish, when that fiery thing was coming at him, he just, my Lord, I'm yours. And when we give our hearts in that way, we receive the presence of our beloved. <laughs>